Chapter 17 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avahi in July 2022. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 17 Light That Does Not Affect the Eye. All light is of itself invisible. Early observations leading up to the discovery of the X-rays. How we are able to see the living skeleton. The means by which invisible rays are made visible. How the X-rays are produced. Some applications of the Röntgen rays. The title of this chapter may appear rather clumsy, but the expression light visible and invisible which is so much in use at present, has always seemed to me misleading. I remember how, when quite a youngster, I was very much impressed by the fact that all light must be invisible. Walking along one night in the dark, I pictured the sun at the other side of this great globe, but sending his rays of light away out into space, reaching to the other planets. It was quite apparent, then, that light must be invisible, or we should see these rays of light beyond the shadow of the earth, and so I was impressed by the fact that all light is invisible before I came to learn the scientific explanation of the matter. As already pointed out, it is really a necessity that we should have a new word to denote light as an ether disturbance, so that it may not be confounded with light sensation in the material retina and optic nerve. We have a great variety of ether waves, as explained in a later chapter. Only a very small proportion of these waves affect our eyes. But while the retina is not disturbed by some rays of light, these affect the chemical preparation on a photographic plate. We are all now quite familiar with the so-called shadow graphs produced by the Röntgen rays, or as Professor Röntgen named them, the X-rays, which remind one of algebra that X be the unknown quantity. By the way, those who have examined such photographs carefully must have noticed that they are not merely shadows, but that there is a great variety of density, and that there is no flatness as in a shadow, but the objects are rounded off like solid bodies. When in 1896 it was announced that the living skeleton could not only be photographed, but might be plainly seen upon a screen, and the movements of every bone watched, the whole civilized world was at once interested. There was a sort of fascinating eeriness about the subject, which doubtless gave it a wider interest than scientific discoveries usually produce. It will be of some interest to see how this very important discovery came about. There must have been a great number of observed facts leading up to this, for even the greatest scientists do not stumble across discoveries unless they are making their way along some definite path in which this previously unobserved phenomenon lies. The now famous German professor did not invent the Röntgen rays. They had been present in many experiments for a long time back, but had not been observed. In the primitive electrical machines in which the ether disturbance was produced by the experimenter holding his hand against a revolving glass cylinder or globe, it had been noticed that if the air was withdrawn from the globe by means of an air pump, 
a beautiful glow of light appeared inside the globe when it was excited by rubbing against the hand. This luminous effect was not present unless the globe was approximately a vacuum. This was known some 170 years ago, and about that time it occurred to one experimenter to try if this luminous effect could be produced in the vacuum globe by electrifying it from another machine instead of exciting the globe directly by the hand. The Polish scientist who tried this was delighted to find that when he passed a charge of electricity from one of these primitive machines through a vacuum tube, the luminous effect appeared, and he at once proposed to use this light in mines and places when ordinary light was dangerous. If this method of lightning had been tried in any dangerous mine, I fear the consequences might have been serious, for it would have been very difficult to prevent sparks passing from the highly charged wires, and these sparks would be quite sufficient to cause ignition of gases followed by explosion. However, we find that for more than a century and a half, this light produced by an electrical discharge in a vacuum has been known to scientists and to those interested in such matters. When a discharge passes between two points in ordinary air, producing a spark, the air offers a great deal of resistance to the electricity, and the disturbance caused by the discharge is of quite a violent nature. The same, of course, holds good if the discharge takes place inside a tube filled with air, but if we connect the tube to an air pump and commence to withdraw the air, we soon find that there is not the same resistance to the electrical discharge, and that we are able to place the two points much farther apart and still get a discharge. As the air in the tube becomes less, we find the discharge becoming quite silent, and instead of repeated sparks there is a constant stream of luminosity. Even when we have got the best vacuum that is possible, we must not imagine that there are no molecules of air left in the tube, for it can very easily be proved that the light is dependent upon some particles of air remaining. If the tube be filled with any other gas, such as hydrogen, and the pump made to withdraw all the gas it can, the discharge in the so-called vacuum remaining is quite different in appearance from that which took place after the ordinary air had been withdrawn from the tube. There is now a blue glow with a crimson effect in the centre, and if the tube has been filled with a mixture of gases before the pump is applied, the effect of an aurora borealis on a small scale may be produced. It is therefore evident that the luminous effect is produced by the particles of air or gas left in the vacuum, and we may imagine these remaining molecules to be bombarded about by the discharge so rapidly in the free space now at their disposal that they become luminous. With improvements in air pumps it was possible to produce more rarefied vacuums, and we are indebted to our great English chemist, Sir William Crookes, for much progress in this branch of science. Crookes produced tubes with such high vacua that the diffused luminosity or glow concentrated itself into a direct stream between the two conducting points as though it were a luminous thread, and he found that a magnet held near the tube would deflect this stream from its direct path. It was also observed that, when these rays fell upon the glass of the tube, they made it glow with a green or bluish phosphorescence. These rays are now famous in the scientific world, and are called 
cathode rays. Before these rays become observable, the air in the tube must be as greatly rarefied as it is away up about 100 miles above the surface of the air. While Professor Röntgen of Würzburg was working with some of these high vacuum tubes, he found that there were other rays originating from the point where these cathode rays impinged upon the glass or upon any other obstruction. By further experiment he found that these unknown or X-rays would pass through a great many bodies which were quite opaque to ordinary light. Other substances were able to stop the rays, and when caused to fall on a photographic plate, they set up the same chemical action as ordinary light, producing a negative in the usual way when developed. Röntgen thus showed that a photograph of the bones of the hand might be taken if the hand was interposed between the tube and the photographic plate. We shall see in the following chapter the very great boon that this discovery has been to suffering man. Crookes had already shown that if he caused the cathode rays to fall upon different crystals by placing them in the path of the cathode stream, the crystals became phosphorescent or fluorescent. It had also been observed that if a piece of glass, coloured greenish by uranium, were moved along in the spectrum produced by light passing through a prism, the glass reflected the colours as ordinary glass would do, but when moved along beyond the visible spectrum at the violet end, the glass still showed the green tint, although there was no apparent light falling upon it. That is to say, there were light waves which did not directly affect the eye, but which were changed by striking upon the uranium glass and then became visible. When the sun's rays pass through a glass prism, the different wavelengths are separated and fall upon the floor or wall in a band of beautiful rainbow colouring, with the appearance of which we are all familiar. At one time it would have seemed ridiculous to suggest that there was anything more than the visible spectrum, but now we know that there are rays beyond this limit in both directions, although the eye does not detect them. Those beyond the violet end of the spectrum will affect the photographic plate, while some will even illuminate a fluorescent screen. In the other direction, beyond the red end of the spectrum, we find the rays or ether waves which affect the wireless telegraph receiver. A fluorescent screen such as used in X-ray work is merely a cardboard coated with some fine crystals, such as platino-cyanide of barium. The ether waves striking upon these crystals are so altered that they are brought within the scope of our vision. In other words, when the invisible X-rays fall upon the crystals, they cause these to send out ether waves which do affect our eyes. The illumination of the screen lasts only so long as the X-rays continue to impinge upon the crystals. There are other phosphorescent substances which continue to emit light after the stimulating waves have been withdrawn. When the X-rays fall upon a fluorescent screen, they illuminate it evenly all over, provided there is no obstacle between the tube and the screen to intercept the X-rays. If the hand be held between the tube and the screen, a shadowgraph or radiograph is produced upon the luminous screen. The principle of the X-ray tube will be understood from the diagram on page 181. The cathode rays impinge upon the little sloping target, 
and this bombardment sets up the ether disturbance known as X-rays. When we come to consider the nature of electric phenomena, we shall see that the so-called cathode rays are composed of very small particles which cannot escape through the glass, whereas the X-rays, being merely an ether disturbance, can pass out through the glass of the tube. We are not sure of the nature of the X-rays further than that they are a disturbance in the ether, possibly a series of splashes or thin pulses. The value of the X-rays to us, as far as photography is concerned, is due to the fact that they can penetrate many substances which are opaque to light. The X-rays have little difficulty in passing through a wooden box. They penetrate the flesh of the hand with ease, but have their way blocked by the bones of the fingers. There are other applications, such as the detection of imitation gems. A real diamond is quite transparent to the rays, while imitation ones are practically opaque. The X-rays have been used also in testing the manufacture of electric cables. By passing the cable between an X-ray tube and a fluorescent screen, the inside of the cable insulation may be examined and faults located. The presence of foreign bodies in the insulating material is easily detected. The X-rays have also been of great value to the scientist, but their practical application in the medical world far surpasses any other application likely to be made. End of chapter 17